sick of sorrow sick of the pain sick of hearing again and again that there's gonna be peace on earth forecast for Catholics Welcome to this first 2007 edition of the CPF Podcast, and we are going to pack a lot in today. We will have our usual episode called In the Beginning, in which Mike Schorsch examines the first 500 years of church teaching and practice concerning war and peace. We will also pick up our series of The Bible and War with Brenna Cusson discussing the seven most often used passages to support war and how we ought to really read them. But we're going to begin today with an interview. We were able to get on the line Logan Latoury, a soldier whose story is becoming increasingly well known for his decision to refuse redeployment to the Iraq War. It's a compelling story and we're going to do it in two parts, beginning now with the first. On the line with us is Logan Lucky Latoury, who has a pretty compelling story about his decision to not redeploy to Iraq. But let's start from the beginning. Logan, thanks for joining us. And talk a little bit about why you enlisted in the year 2000. Were you recruited? What were your motivations? Um, I, I'd love to. Actually, initially, I was looking for a, a way to pay for college because I was um, interested in going to college in Hawaii. Um, so... A recruiter contacted me. Actually, I attended a, a, a little event with a recruiter, and it, the, the wheel just started turning. Um, and really, the, the basic motivating factor behind my enlistment was to earn money for college and to uh, see you know, the rest of the world or see something outside the uh, you know, Orange County, California, where I was uh, born and raised. So that was the actual initial reason I signed up. And did you have any initial misgivings once you began training? Um, I was a little concerned with the, just the, the tactics that were employed to um, train us to go to combat. I, I think I was very aware of the the effort, which was very subconscious and not very outward, to remove an, the identity of a perceived enemy. Um, I, I studied very uh, briefly uh, psychology in high school. I'm still interested. Um, in fact, I think that's going to be my bachelor's. Um, so I was always very aware of this you know, this, um, what needs to be done in order for someone to kill another person. And what really needs to happen is you need to build up degrees of separation that remove from a person's mind that person's identity. You don't want to see uh, a man or a woman. You don't want to see him with kids. You don't want to see an age as just a very faceless, nameless uh, enemy. And that's what they continue to, to instill. And that was really the only uh, misgiving or awareness that I had in training and leading up and for the first several years in in my uh, time in the Army. Now, at this time when you were first enlisting and beginning, would you have described yourself as a Christian, or where were you at? Um, I was definitely telling myself I was a Christian. Um, my my uh, prayer life was not really existent, and um, but had anybody asked, I definitely would have said, yes, I, I think that Jesus was God and, and the Transfiguration and all that, but it never really had any deeper meaning than well, yes, of course I'm a Christian, I'm American, or yes, I'm a Christian, I've got the T-shirts and the stickers and the, 
and uh, everything that I was supposed to believe uh, identified me as a Christian, but it was all very superficial and didn't really have any depth of meaning for me to be a Christian, and what does that mean, and how do I apply that? It was simply kind of a label for myself, I think, that I adopted by, by default, more or less. Okay. Now let's move ahead to your time in Iraq. When did you deploy, and then walk us through the experience in Iraq. Okay. Um, I deployed with the 25th Infantry Division uh, out of Schofield Barracks on January 19, 2004. Um, I had been in Hawaii for a year before I deployed, and uh, my time in Iraq was actually spent with uh, first the 14th Infantry Golden Dragons um, in the uh, 2nd Brigade of the 25th. And um, we were actually kind of unique. Um, we were the quick reaction force for the theater commander in Iraq, which is basically to say that um, we kind of uh, got in a little bit of trouble when we first got out there and we pissed them off. So I guess our punishment was to make us the, uh, the QRF. So we were actually, we didn't have a home base or a home FOB, a uh, forward operating base. We were actually called out on numerous occasions to spend a week, two weeks, a month or more at different hotspots that arose throughout the country. Um, we went to places like Samara, uh, Najaf, Ziwania, Mosul, Kirkuk. Um, we were actually expecting to go to Fallujah with the Marines, but it didn't happen. So uh, my experience in Iraq was actually maybe a little bit more widespread than some, and maybe not as much as others. Um, and while I was out there, I think my misgivings grew because I began to see myself and accept myself as, uh, or as having a place in the geopolitical kind of spectrum of, of my, my country's uh, dealings with the world. Um, and out there, I actually read the 9-11 Commission report. I thought it was very interesting, really good read. And I, I slowly developed this consciousness of my responsibility as as simply a human being towards the rest of the world. Um, it didn't initially originate as a, a faith-based or, or a religious conviction. It was simply, you know, I'm here and I'm doing this. What does that mean? And do I agree with it? Um, so I, I don't think that I had an, extre an extremely horrific um, uh, deployment. Uh, I did experience some things that, that everybody experiences in combat. So I'm always quick to add that, you know, I don't think that my deployment or my combat was any more spectacular than anybody else's, but I think where I find a difference for myself and other and uh, majority of other soldiers that I really wanted to understand um, the significance of my being in Iraq in combat and what that meant and and kind of apply it more deeply to my life. Um, and then we returned uh, after 14 months in February of 2005, um, and that was uh, that's kind of it as far as Iraq went. Right. And then it was when you um, were back and you received word of redeployment that uh, things kind of crystallized for you. And what made you decide, I'm not going back? Well, um, it's actually a little inaccurate. I, I, I was, I'll get to it in a, a bit. When I returned from, uh, from Iraq uh, in March, I'm sorry, May, I met uh, a really great woman. We started dating and I got to know her family, and her family was the first example of people that I could see right before my eyes very seriously um, applying the Bible to their lives, like living the Bible instead of just reading about it. Um, and her father especially took me under his wing and, and taught me a lot of uh, very interesting things about the Bible that I hadn't really seen a lot of other people um, reading into. Um, and I went to him on a lot of different issues that came up, um, and his kind of keynote response is always was always on several occasions it's about love lucky so 
I began to understand this unconditional love that Christ offers. Like there is no, there's no reason for it. We don't deserve it. And he gives it to us free of charge. Um, so I began to understand what it meant to, to accept that and also to be, to offer it. Um, and as a result of some other things, I started taking a new Testament history class and I began to understand the, the historic validity of the Bible and, uh, something my teacher uh, told me early in the class that sticks me to this day was that he said, don't, or when you read the Bible, since if you believe that it contains absolute truth and that God is basically better than you are and more smarter than you are, in essence, um, you have to allow the Bible to shape your opinions, not your opinion shape the Bible. Hmm. So at that point, I really went into it with a fresh mind. I excused, or I tried to excuse all my biases, or at least acknowledge that I had biases when I read the Bible. Um, and in the final igniter, that really like set me into a committed uh, pursuit of, of being a follower instead of just a believer in Christ. Um, my brother and I were having an argument, and um, I said something. I, I think I offered to pray for him or something, and he, he saw it kind of hypocritical. And what he said was, um, it's convenient how you uh, introduce God into your life when it's convenient for you. And in trying to uh, objectively and honestly uh, understand if that was true, I found out that it was. I was really being a hypocrite in saying I was a Christian, but not really applying it to my life. Um, and since then, I really started looking into it more deeply, like um, applying the Bible and Christ and everything that he has to offer into every single facet of my life. Um, and not bef- and before long, um, I began to seriously question if I could be uh, a forward observer, which was my MOS in the, in the military, um, if I could do that job and still legitimately call myself a Christian. Um, so I began studying um, if that, you know, in my, in my pursuit of, of understanding, I went to a lot of different people um, to figure out if, if Christians can kill another person in, uh, you know, and, and still kind of get away with it, basically. Um, and pretty much a large number of people that I went to in that period of time, it was between March and April of, uh, of 06, uh, a lot of them said, well, it's, it's, a moral, it's morally uh, right to end an attacker's life to defend the person that he is attacking. Um, in essence, and that's really boiled down. Um, and I was introduced into the just war theory, so I studied that as well. I studied uh, Aquinas's uh, Theologiae, uh, Augustine's City of God, uh, Calvin, Luther. There's a, a few different names. Um, and the more and more I read it, and the more and more I, I kind of ha- began to understand this cursory understanding of um, of just war theory, the less and less I found scriptural references. And because I had been taught to trust the Bible more than anything that I, I began to really not be comfortable with the, the theory, which it essentially is, um, that if it, if it does not check itself against the, the authority of the Bible. So I kind of fell away from believing in just war theory. I fell away from believing a lot of what people were telling me about, well, it's, war is necessary, and uh, we're doing the, the morally superior thing by uh, you know, ending the dictatorship in Iraq or overthrowing the Taliban or fill in the blank. Um, so... Uh, with that, I actually I, I went to a probably two weeks of just straight prayer and really like seeking God in it. And this was the first time I really committed myself to understanding God. Um, and I never asked for wisdom or I never asked for knowledge. I just wanted to be shown like, you know, what do you want me to do? Kind of uh, prayers. And on um, it was actually on April 20th when I was on a bus with my infantry company to the airport to fly to California for a training event that I actually received an answer. 
um, um, what, what I saw on April 20th was um, me in the Middle East. I wasn't sure if it was Iraq, but I knew it was a conflicted area or territory or warring nation. Um, and the other thing that I knew was that I did not have a weapon. Um, and what superseded this whole like um, image or this vision that I had was that I felt like pervasive and um, all-encompassing just just um, confidence in knowing that this is what God wants me to do, and I'm comfortable, and I'm not afraid of death, and I'm you know all these different things that really added to this this feeling of of assuredness, I guess. Um, so with that, um, I told a few of my uh, immediate supervisors. I talked to the chaplain once we got to California, of course. And um, after a, a lengthy process of trying to see my commander, on June 5th, I, I submitted my 4187 request for conscience objector status as a non-combatant, and I told them that I wanted to go back to Iraq, but I would not carry a weapon. Um, and there's only been a couple people who have actually sought non-combatant status, and usually they actually reassign you and send you to a training brigade. And I was unique in the fact that I really wanted to stay with my unit. I had actually proposed ideas for them for, for things that I could do to be a productive member of the unit, but not have to actually carry a weapon. I was basically asking to practice my right to refuse to bear arms, and that's kind of what started um, my formal packet on June 5th. The following segment is part of our series, The Bible and War, in which we look at seven New Testament passages most often used to support war. Today, Brenna Cusson continues that series by looking at the famous passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Oftentimes, only the first half of this verse is quoted. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This gives the impression that Jesus wants us to be loyal to the king, the kaiser, the fatherland, the nation-state. But then comes the second half of the verse. And to God, the things that are God's. This is the punchline. It confronts us with the challenge of figuring out what are the things of Caesar and what are the things of God. The context gives some more specific clues. Jesus is asked whether or not the Jews should pay taxes. In response, he asks for a coin. Whose likeness and inscription is this? He asks, and they tell him it is Caesar's. It is then that he issues his puzzling command, render to Caesar. The puzzle is solved, as Irenaeus, the second century Bishop of Lyons, pointed out, when we come to see that just as Caesar's image is on the coin, so God's image is on each human being. The coin belongs to Caesar. Each human being belongs to God. This truth is the keystone of conscientious objection to war. I am made in the image and likeness of God. I belong to God. Therefore, 
Caesar has no right to hinder my belonging to God. Moreover, just as I am made in the image and likeness of God, so is everyone else. So who am I to take the lives of others? John Milton once stated, My conscience I have from God and cannot give to Caesar. And Dorothy Day remarked, If we gave God all that belongs to God, there would be nothing left for Caesar. Clearly, Mark 12:17 calls for anything but unquestioning service to Caesar. Instead, Christ invites us to discern the extent to which we render all that is God's to God, and it challenges us to live in God's likeness as revealed to us by Jesus. The second passage is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. The soldiers, too, asked John the Baptist, What should we do? That this passage is used to show scriptural support for the military demonstrates how tricky scripture can be in several respects. For one thing, the instructions don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay are often taken as advice given by Jesus. But in fact, these are the words of John the Baptist, who, granted, was a prophet and a forerunner to Jesus, but was not the Word incarnate. Moreover, the legitimacy of soldiering is not at issue in these instructions. Rather, it is the opposite. The fact that soldiers are seeking advice is one way Luke depicts the kingdom as open to those of dubious professions. Accordingly, in this scene, John the Baptist says to the Jewish crowds, Salvation History's ultimate insiders, Don't just say, we're safe, we're the descendants of Abraham. That proves nothing. Then we read that the crowd also contained some obvious outsiders, tax collectors for one, and soldiers. This is in keeping with the overall theme of this particular gospel. Time and again, Luke shows that outsiders, those beyond the normal bounds of acceptability, often hear God's word with more attentiveness than the insiders. Perhaps we too should ask the question of these, outs of these outsiders. What should we do? This is the point made by Robert Karras in the New Jerome Biblical Commentary who suggests that the important feature of this scene is not the specific professions of the askers, nor even the specific answers that they receive. It is the fact that they asked, that they struggled, they wanted to know what to do. And so should we. In this sense, the soldiers are an example that we should emulate not in their actual jobs, but in their desire to follow God. Moreover, if there is any relevant detail about John's answers to all the seekers, 
It is the emphasis on detachment from money and the importance of following Jesus' example. And those who try to stretch this passage into a blanket justification for today's military should also note that John himself was executed on orders of the king, carried out by the king's guards. Hi, this is In the Beginning, and I'm Mike Shorsh. In this edition of Warcast for Catholics, we're going to continue our series on the soldier martyrs of the early church. As I mentioned in episode 4, these were Christians in the Roman army who were killed for the faith, many of them during the persecutions at the end of the 3rd century. The Roman army had a unique set of religious and pseudo-religious rituals that distinguished soldiers from civilians, and which Christians considered to be idolatrous. Soldiers in the Roman army also, obviously, fought wars and killed people, and officers were required to oversee capital punishment. Many Christians at the time considered bloodshed to be sacrilegious and unholy. When the idolatry and violence of the military were taken together, along with the gluttony, drunkenness, and lust, it's obvious that Christians would have a problem with military service and some would refuse it. One shining example of this refusal is St. Maximilian, sometimes called St. Maximilian the Recruit. As we'll see, he never actually made it into the Roman army. He might be considered the first great Christian draft resistor for his refusal to be forcibly inducted into the military. His story comes to us in a remarkable Latin document that appears to be based on a court transcript. In 295, a proconsul named Dion went to North Africa to recruit soldiers for one of his legions. Among the recruits was Maximilian, the son of one of the local army recruiters, Fabius Victor. Our account opens when Fabius brings his son before Dion and one of the officials tells Dion that since Maximilian has excellent references, he should be measured and outfitted for equipment right then and there. Some of Dion's aides begin measuring Maximilian, and Dion asks, Maximil asks Maximilian his name, and it begins to be clear that this is not going to be a standard military induction. Why do you want to know my name? Maximilian asks the proconsul. I'm not allowed to be a soldier because I'm a Christian. Dion ignores Maximilian and tells his aides to opta ilum in Latin, get him ready. It's not clear what this means, but perhaps they're already fitting him with a helmet, basic armor, and so on. While this is happening, Maximilian keeps protesting. I can't be a soldier, Maximilian insists. I can't do evil. I'm a Christian. Dion continues to ignore him and tells his aides to give Maximilian the military seal. This, it turns out, is the sticking point. Getting the military seal, a metal necklace worn only by soldiers, meant that you were, in a sense, physical and spiritual property of the emperor and the empire with all its gods. Some Christians who opposed military service, such as Tertullian, made the military seal the focus of their attacks on Christians serving in the army. Maximilian won't let the seal be put on him. Dion finally takes notice. Matter-of-factly, he says, be a soldier or you'll die. At last, Maximilian has engaged the proconsul. He responds, I'm no soldier. Cut off my head. I'm not a soldier for the world, but I am a soldier for my God. Dion seems fed up. Who convinced you of this, he says. But Maximilian tells him, my soul and the one who has called me. 
Dion now turns to Fabius. Remember, Maximilian's father is a recruiter. But remarkably, Fabius just says he knows what's going on. He has his own counsel. He knows what's good for him. Giving up on Dad, Dion turns again to Maximilian and tells him to accept the military seal. But Maximilian addresses him, saying, I am not accepting the seal of the world, and if you put it on me, I'll smash it up, because it's useless. I am a Christian. I can't wear some piece of metal around my neck after I have accepted the saving sign of Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, whom you don't know, who suffered for our salvation, whom God handed over for our sins. All of us Christians serve him. We follow him, the ruler of life, the author of salvation. After arguing more and telling Maximilian that other Christians serve honorably in the army, Dion asks Max Maximilian, what's so wrong that soldiers do? Maximilian simply responds, Tuenim skis quifaciunt. You know what they do. In the end, Dion sentences Maximilian to death. In a final farewell, Maximilian tells his father, who remains silent, that the new clothes he gave him for his new life in the military should be given to his executioner. And then Maximilian is killed, probably after being tortured briefly. An old woman has his body buried near that of St. Cyprian. The account tells us that Maximilian's father soon followed his son in martyrdom, though it doesn't say when or how, and tells us no more about his conversion. And then the account concludes, Deo gracias. Amen. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, that's about it for this edition of the podcast. We'll end with a quote from St. Martin of Tours and his great decision to lay down his weapon. The quote, first in Latin, is, Miles Christi ego sum, puniare mihi non licet. I am a soldier of Christ, and it is not lawful for me to do violence. Our hope is that this podcast, the interview, and all the other episodes will help all of us to lay down the weapons that we carry to become a sign of peace for the church to the world. Until the next time, this is Warcast for Catholics.